Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, and welcome to the latest edition of Retina Synthesis. Today, we're pleased to have with us Professor Jesse Berry of the USC Roski Eye Institute, Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and uh, a very distinguished investigator in the field of retinoblastoma. She's an associate professor at USC, holds the Lynn Murphy Chair, named after our distinguished colleague who had uh, an entire career of retinoblastoma care and is vice chair in the Department of Surgery at CHLA for Academic Affairs. So you're doing lots of stuff. Jesse, welcome to Retina Synthesis. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. We'd like to talk today about diagnostic measures for retinoblastoma, but we we have limited our uh, coverage of tumors on retina synthesis to two talks on melanoma by Bill Harbour and Paul Finger. And this is our first lecture on retinoblastoma, which is indeed the most challenging of all ocular conditions because it deals with children that are at risk of losing both their lives and their sight. Can you give us an update on current therapy of retinoblastoma? Absolutely. Well, you know, um, RB's my jam, so I'll, I'll talk about it anytime. So one of the big pieces about retinoblastoma that is a real challenge for all of us, and I think it's part of what draws some people to the field, is that, you know, you look into the eye of a kid, it could be a brand new newborn or one-year-old, two-year-old, and based on what you see and what you find on ultrasound, you make a decision that it's retinoblastoma, so it's based on clinical diagnosis currently, and then you decide what to do. Treatment, um, even in the U.S., varies a little bit by center, and there's a lot of debate about it. But basically, your first step is deciding whether or not you're going to try to save the eye. And that usually depends on how old the child is, if one or both eyes are involved. If both eyes are involved, obviously, you're usually trying to get anything you can saved. Um, and then how advanced the tumor is. So most still use the ABCDE um, staging that Lynn proposed, but it gives you an idea of A being really small tumors and E being tumors that are everywhere. It's still very standard throughout many places in the world to remove an eye if it's a child that has disease just in one eye and that disease is a D or an E, so very advanced. However, thankfully, we've gotten better at treating eyes, so we are also treating more advanced eyes. Any treatment for retinoblastoma involves some form of chemotherapy, and usually initially it's either systemic chemotherapy given through the veins or what we call intra-arterial. So that's a procedure to give chemo. It's done by our interventional radiology colleagues, and they thread a catheter through the femoral up to the ostium of the ophthalmic artery and pulse chemotherapy directly into the eye. That's been very successful, and so it's allowed us to treat more advanced eyes and save more advanced eyes. And some places will do just um, intra-arterial, and some use a mix of modalities. So does uh, radiation have any role? 
Not so much anymore. So the answer is not never. I've been doing this for about 15 years. And that paradigm changed a lot right when I was coming out of fellowship. So, you know, this is why I tell all my trainees, whatever you learn in residency and fellowship, you still have to be ready to learn something new and apply it when you're an attending because there can be these big shifts. So one of these big shifts, which actually ushered in my research, was that um, uh, previously people had attempted to inject chemotherapy intravitreally and had problems, particularly tumor spread. And so it was abandoned. But Francis Mounier, who is a Swiss uh, ocular oncologist, he actually trained at CHLA and USC with Lynn, uh, devised what he called a safety enhanced procedure for injections. And so as part of that safety enhanced procedure, there was some imaging that you would do to ensure the area was clear of disease. And then you would lower the intraocular pressure with a paracentesis so that when you then went into the vitreous space and injected the chemotherapy fluid, you were less likely to have that efflux of active retinoblastoma tumor cells to the injection site. And then his last safety um, procedure was to use a cryotherapy probe at the sclera when you pull the needle out of the eye. And so by proposing these safety enhanced um, mechanisms, it made this procedure something that suddenly was done really very safely around the world. And it took this disease that um, has this uh, propensity for vitreous seeding, which leads to recurrence, from that being the number one cause of removing the eye to something that could be treated very nicely with these injections of chemotherapy. So when I was in fellowship, you would probably see, I don't know, maybe two, three, four kids a year need to have radiation for those vitreous seeds. That's now completely changed because now we can treat them with injections. So- Tell us about your work in aqueous diagnostics for retinal. Yeah. So because, sorry, you hear my, my baby in the background. I apologize. Um, because for the first time with these intravitreal injections, we were taking something out of the eye, right? We were taking the paracentesis and taking the aqueous fluid out. It gave us the opportunity to say at a really broad level, is there something in there? And I think if I'm honest, my first research question was at that broad of a level. Is there something in the aqueous humor that we can study? And it has exploded into a whole new world. So initially when I had this question, can we use the aqueous for something? The thought was, well, no, the aqueous is clear. You see through it. There's really not meant to be a lot in there or no, it's too small of a volume that you can take out or no, the tumor is in a completely separate compartment of the eye from, from the aqueous. And admittedly, I was probably naive enough to just keep pushing the question and ultimately was connected with a group of uh, scientists at USC, Peter Kuhn and um, James Hicks, who do liquid biopsy work. And they were doing a lot of work in the cancer scene and doing single cell analyses. And so they said, well, okay, you can only give me a hundred microliters of clear fluid, but if it has the same amount of DNA as a cell and I can work on a single cell, I we can make this work. And so we did our first pilot of five samples and from advanced eyes. 
and all five were positive. We were really excited. We were finding tumor DNA in the aqueous humor. And so uh, we said, well, okay, let's take them from less advanced eyes and see if you're still seeing it. And the answer again was yes. And it just exploded um, into this cool companion diagnostic where we can now attain enough tumor DNA in the eye as long as we have a tumor that's three millimeters. And there's no other liquid biopsy source currently that has that kind of sensitivity. So what do we want to know from the biopsy? Yeah. So as I mentioned, when, you know, we started this intro into retinoblastoma, we look in the eye and make a diagnosis and ocular oncologists are pretty good at doing that. Unless you cannot see because there's a cataract or there's vitreous hemorrhage or the cornea is cloudy, most of the time we can make a diagnosis. But sometimes it's difficult, even for ocular oncologists. Again, if you've lost the view, not everyone is an ocular oncologist and not all kids and all families have the benefit of going to um, someone who's been trained the way I was lucky to train with Lynn. And um, furthermore, sometimes it's nice to just have a an actual firm confirmed diagnosis. So number one is we can get the DNA, we can show that there's RB1 mutations and other mutations driving retinoblastoma. And so we can say with 100% certainty, this is RB. And I actually used that not that long ago. I had a case come in. I was pretty sure it was Coates, but I wasn't 100% sure. And I was able to use the aqueous to say, look, doesn't look like coats to me. The aqueous is not finding any RB1 mutations. This seems consistent. I feel comfortable sending this um, on to my retina colleagues without doing anything else. So I think diagnosis in a molecular fashion is impactful. But what I think is more impactful is that I am really hopeful that this will start to move retinoblastoma to the same space as other cancers. So you probably know this, your viewers know this, but for most other cancers, you take a biopsy and you understand what's driving the tumor, whether it's genes or genomic rearrangements. And then often you choose your therapy based on that. We have, we're nowhere near that for retinoblastoma because we've gone decades without biopsying this tumor or while all these other cancers moved ahead to personalized medicine, retinoblastoma, the tumor that started cancer genetics with the first you know, cloned tumor suppressor gene, that one cancer was left behind in this because you didn't have access to tumor tissue and you didn't have access to tumor DNA. Well, now we do. And so we're playing a lot of catch up and I have groups around the world um, working on their own programs and, and working in collaboration with me to try to catch up so that when you invite me back to Retina um, to speak um, here with you, we can talk hopefully in the next several years about not the different ways we apply chemotherapy, but how we now use targeted inhibitors based on the specific genomic profile of the tumor. So we're not there yet, but I really think we'll get there because we've gotten there with so many other cancers. So any genomic profiles that have been identified yet? Yeah, so we are able to identify these genomic alterations in the vast majority of eyes. Um, again, as long as the tumor is greater than three millimeters. One of the things we were able to show with our work is that there are some alterations that appear to be prognostic. Now, 
people knew from eyes that had been enucleated that some of these alterations existed, but they didn't really know if it mattered because I mean, you know, to be quite honest, the eye was already out of the child. So if it did matter, it was too late. The, the kid had lost their eye. Now we could compare those profiles and we were able to see that something called gain of 6P. What that means is the, the short arm of chromosome six has too many copies. Again, we, we knew that that happened in retinoblastoma, but it appears that if that's present, the tumor is more aggressive. It's a tumor that tends to respond poorly to the chemotherapy approaches we currently have. And it's also far more likely to recur. So you can treat these kids, but they have a higher risk of recurrence. And sometimes those relapses are big enough that we have to remove the eye at that point. Mm -hmm. So what about targeted therapy for retinoblastoma? What are the potential options in theory? Yeah. So thank you for saying in theory, because right now we're all in theory, but there, there are actually some, some people, um, including us that are working on some approaches to this. So first of all, there are some focal alterations that we can identify in these profiles that includes MCN amplification. You hear about that for neuroblastoma. We see that in retinoblastoma. Um, MDM, and there are some MDM inhibitors, so we can identify both broad-scale alterations that include the MDM gene, um, 2 and 4, but also focal amplification, suggesting that that gene is overacting, they're the gene product, and may be one of the drivers for that cancer. We've also um, identified methylation profiling, so other cancers had this idea that um, aberrant methylation can turn the good genes off and the bad genes on and make a cancer hot or make a cancer grow. And so we asked, okay, well, can you identify the methylation profile in the aqueous? The answer is yes. We published that um, just about six months ago now in Nature Communications. And so there are some methylation inhibitors um, or regulators that are being investigated. And so if you have a tumor that has aberrant methylation, that's a bad player, can you give these children a drug that turns it into a better player? So it, it makes it more responsive to treatment. These are all venues that are, again, not currently being used for these kids, but I suspect they will be in definitely the next decade, if not sooner. Are other centers uh, doing aqueous diagnostics? Yes, this is the thing that makes me so happy. Um, there are centers now all over the country and all over the world doing this work. Um, we at CHLA and at USC have a multi-center program. So anyone who wants to join um, and they don't have their own local resources to you know, run these single cell sequencing protocols, can send samples to us. So that's one way people can get involved. Um, Birmingham um, in the UK, Curie, uh, Lausanne in Switzerland, Germany, these are all groups that are working on the aqueous. Um, and in fact, both Birmingham and Curie use it clinically. So they're already employing it to help with the diagnosis of these kids and to help guide prognosis. Um, and like I said, we're all kind of working together in this collaborative space. 
I have centers right now trying to go live in Brazil, in Israel, in India, and frankly, even in Africa, which is astounding, but they have a sequencer and they want to utilize it well for various cancers. So this is absolutely a growing area of research. So does every patient with a retinoblastoma eye need aqueous diagnostics? I think right this minute, the answer is no. Um, we offer it. And again, we offer it clinically. I'm then able to give a piece of paper to these parents explaining that, that, that yes, they have retinoblastoma and here are the alterations in their child's specific tumor. The other thing we found that's so fascinating is remember almost half of these kids, 40% or so have tumors in both eyes. The alterations are different in both eyes and likely that underscores and explains what we as clinicians have seen for a long time, which is you treat the kid about the same one eye does well, one eye does poorly. Why? Well, because they have different molecular events. And so the tumors are actually different, right? And so these are the kinds of information you can provide to the family. Um, and we, with the support of NCI, are trying to show that the specific alterations we find again, can guide prognosis and hopefully can establish the baseline for clinical trials. So in the future, we can say, okay, your kid has 6P in this eye. We're going to treat them this way. Your kid doesn't have 6P. We're going to treat them this way instead. And we can study how to treat kids in a more personalized manner by using their genomic profile from the aqueous. So this is exciting. And I think it opens a whole new horizon for treating retinoblastoma. Thank you. I'm so excited about it. This is, you know, aside from my actual babies that you hear and aside from my RB patients, this is my baby. I love this research. And frankly, I love that we're melding these cool and advancing liquid biopsy technologies that have been used in so many other cancers to this field and with aqueous. I think I mentioned I was at the NCI um, last week talking and I thought, oh, I'm going to be this weird outlier. Everyone else is talking about blood or CSF. And in fact, the whole group was really excited about the aqueous because it's a really clean fluid, right? We don't have a bunch of genomic DNA, a bunch of red blood cells breaking down and shedding into our aqueous. It's a clean fluid. So the links that we can make there and our understanding of how X relates to Y can then go back and be applied in the blood. And so I think it's going to be a really cool way to bring retinoblastoma to the forefront of cancer genetics and genomics again, right? Retinoblastoma was the first cloned gene, right? The RB1 tumor suppressor gene. And now we're saying retinoblastoma liquid biopsy may hold the key to better understanding liquid biopsies in other cancers. I think that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for a, a wonderful discussion, and we'll be back to you in the near future to find out what's going on. Thank you, Dr. Jesse Berry. Thank you so much.